Good morning, Evergreen. If you would, open your Bibles and turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, I'm going to be reading through, really I'm going to start at the beginning at verse 1 and read to verse 13. Maybe something that I should have said last week is why return to Genesis? Why go back when we have the final word that God spoke in his son, Jesus Christ? Well, first of all, the whole Bible is God's word. All of it is true. And I think we have something of particular importance of why it would be wise for us to return to the book of Genesis. Even after seeing the complete revelation in Christ. It's because we live in a day of confusion. A day in which people are confused about even the most basic of realities. And I truly believe that this confusion that we see, and it's not just in the world, it's also in our very churches. Families, who you see even some of you might have been affected by certain people who grow up and are confused about their gender, confused about purpose of life, confused about what we're here to do. The root of all these things are found in Genesis. It is the most comprehensive work of history that we have. And that's not just, yes, of the Bible, but also of any book of human literature. The amount of years that it spans is absolutely incredible. And what we see in the book of Genesis in particular is the foundation of every major Christian doctrine, and particularly what the game plan is. We're not going to be in Genesis for the next, like, five years we're going to be going through Genesis 1 to 11. That's the game plan. And it's going to be, feel like a walk through Genesis 1 through 3 just because of how packed it is of essential foundational truths. And then it'll be more like a jog and a run as we go through chapter 4, verse, uh, chapter 4 to chapter 11. So we're actually going to be done in this sermon series by April, if you can believe it or not. But what we have here is the foundational truths. And we started off with what's absolutely most essential of what, what Genesis reveals to us. Who God is. That at the center of human history, the first thing we need to know is not who we are or how, what our purpose is in the world. We need to know who God is. And what God has determined and what God has planned. That's most essential. But as we move and look at the creation days, the focus on earth, we see God cares about this world that he's made. That humanity as the crown, we understand ourselves in light of who God is because we've been made in his image. And that all of creation, not just humanity, but everything's marked by his design for his purposes in the world. If I had to title this whole series, I would be talking about the foundations of history itself. Foundational truths. But as we start and read in verse 4, we're going to read about the foundations, or rather the framework of the history of the world. And that's why I've titled this sermon, The Framework of World History. Let us read God's word 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. There was evening. And there was morning. The first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. And let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse. And separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven or sky. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place. And let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth. And the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation. Plants yielding seeds and fruit trees bearing fruit in which their seed according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, the trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. I read an article for, from NASA. This was April 13th. 2022. NASA defined the universe as that which it includes all of space and all of the matter and energy that space contains. It even includes time itself, and of course it includes you. If we go back a little bit, they, they had discovered this even and articulated something like this, the European Space Agency, August 20th of 2013 said the universe is everything we can touch, feel, sense, measure, or detect. It includes living things, planets, stars, galaxies, dust clouds, light, and even time. Before the birth of the universe, time, space, and matter did not exist. You know, it's kind of funny is that since all truth is God's truth, actually in the very first verse of Genesis, we see that the answer that took people so long to develop was already there. Look at Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, time, God created energy, intelligence, the heavens and the earth, space, matter. You know, Moses' approach to this text and what he's trying to do here is he's trying to convince people who had just left Egypt, who were raised in an Egyptian culture, 
that our God, the God we worship, the God who just conducted so many miracles and led the people out from slavery to the Egyptians, is the one and true God. He's the only one who framed and constructed the earth in the entire universe itself. He did it by himself. He did not have any help at all. None of the gods of Egypt helped him or even exist. That's Moses' goal. Moses is making a direct assault on the pagan mythologies that the people of Israel were likely to imbibe in. And were probably under threat of believing in because everyone else believes in the gods who made the heavens and the earth in their own particular way. But we have our own pagan creation myths and mythologies. We haven't actually gotten that far away from it. We've developed our own mechanisms for how we determine the age of the universe. And we craft a story of how it began and how it developed and maybe that it might have taken 13.8 billion years. We then have crafted an origin story for the earth 4.8 billion years ago. With the evolution of life, all of this happening by naturalistic, materialistic mechanisms that don't involve God at all. And the funny thing about creation mythologies is things haven't really changed. When you see the stories being told, what's always included on it is little cartoon graphics of artistic representations of what has happened in the past. Nothing really much has changed. Whether it's the evolutionary timeline or whether it's the age of the earth. You know, I, I quoted NASA and I quoted the European Space Agency. And there's a certain sense in which all truth is God's truth. That if God is the one who created the heavens and the earth, in other words, absolutely everything, he should know geology pretty well. He should know biology pretty well. He should know physics pretty well. Why are then we at this crossroads where there are conflicting stories of how we came to be? And don't think that this doesn't matter. Of course our origins matter. The reason why people have thought of creation mythologies in the past is always because our origins tell us something about who we are, where we come from, what our purpose is. If our origins were out of a cold and different universe, just by mere forces at work that are impersonal, with no design in it, are we really surprised when people find life meaningless, who undergo depression because they see that time, death, and chaos destroys any efforts that we make in this world, at least from our perspective in the spans of our life. It's at this point that God has so graciously told us how he's made the world, the design that he's built in it. I got a little carried away this week in thinking how much I could accomplish. Out of those two questions, I'm only going to address the origin of the universe and the time question. 
I'm going to leave the evolution question in verses 11 through 13 to next week. Or this is going to be a walk through Genesis chapter 1. But about this, I think it's really important to say that this problem in the world is not just a problem that's restricted to secular scientists. I don't know if you know this, but evangelicalism in general for the past several decades have embraced either one form or another of theistic evolution. That it was actually way back, way back, not bake, way back in 1814 that a beloved Presbyterian, Thomas Chalmers, really advocated after looking at geology, advocated for something called the gap theory to compensate for the long ages of the universe. There's a website called BioLogos in which it's dedicated to offering theistic evolutionary support for the evangelical community. Even the late Tim Keller, when reading through Genesis, he said, to account for evolution, we must see at least Genesis 1 as non-literal. These views are absolutely pervasive. And when I tell you that, I'm gonna, let me go ahead and lay out all my cards on the table. The view that I'm going to be presenting to you is that of the, the traditional Christian interpretation. A six, 24-hour creation week of a universe that's approximately the same age as the Earth itself. Not long ago compared to the times of the, you know, the span of billions and billions of years. See, I think one thing that we should, maybe one takeaway, that before we even dive into this, is that it should never be the Christian's goal to accommodate the Bible and the truths that it presents to the theories of people. Especially when the ideas and theories are fundamentally at odd with the message of Scripture. This is my warning in one of my favorite quotes, and it's from Albert Moeller. That embarrassment is the gateway drug for theological accommodation and denial. Did you hear me? That embarrassment is this theological gateway drug for accommodation and denial. You see, whenever we're talking about science itself, we need to, re we need to remember that science as it's presented to us is always presented to us as objective and settled when it comes to things like the age of the world or evolution. And in reality, science is neither. Not that we can't, and it's a, not a worthwhile experience, to go and discover truth as it is revealed in natural revelation. Of course not. But it's not objective in the sense that the data that we collect always has to have an interpreter. Someone has to make sense of the data from the different experimentations that we run. Christians need to further realize that in human interpreters, there's always a bias towards sin and a bias that promotes truths or truths that do not align with Scripture. That's going to be the natural bent. And that other phrase, settled science, is very, very, by the very name of it, is kind of an oxymoron because science, at its best, 
deals with a small amount of the overall potential data that we need to make sense of. And always the goal of science is to consider new data, new information, and how it might change our current theories. And as we come to the text, when we are confronted with a world that speaks to a long world or speaks to the origin of our species, there's two sets of data that need interpreting. Who could be wrong? It could be that the science in the sense of the data and the explanation that's provided is wrong. But let's be honest, it also could be our interpretation of the data of sacred scripture. And that's why we should be completely fine when people challenge us in what we believe. But the first step, and the one that I'm really, the one that I'm going to do this morning, is go to the text of scripture. What does it actually say? Well, we can start at verse 3. God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated light from darkness, and called the light day, and the darkness night. There was evening, and then there was morning, the first day. What's being presented to us here? Well, the world starts off in darkness. That was verse 2. The world started off in a phase of complete darkness. God spoke light into existence. And then something curious happens in verse 4. God is said to have separated the light... ...from the darkness. Isn't it the very nature of light? If I turn on lights in this room, doesn't it pervade everywhere? Doesn't darkness by its very nature is just the absence of light? What's being talked about here... ...is something that we kind of all understand. It's important that when we are reading scripture... ...the Bible uses popular language... ...uses language from people's perspectives. We not ought to understand that the scriptures are trying to speak of physical occurrences... ...by means of scientific precision and analysis. That's not the point. So when people say that the, the Bible is not a science textbook, in that sense, that's true. God is not about revealing in this text a scientific mechanism for what we are observing... What's being presented to us is the fact of something that we all know. If God was going to present this scientifically, God would have said something like, and God spoke and the earth started spinning. That there was day, there was a time period that God called day, and then there was a time period that God referred to as night. And what's the pattern throughout every single day in Genesis, there was evening and there was morning, day one. When I say that even, don't you say it's morning, day starts in the morning, and then day closes with the evening? That's how I conceptualize my day. Well, remember when the Jews were trying to bury Jesus and they were trying to rush before the end of the day? They were trying to bury him before the Sabbath day started when a body could not be left hanging on a tree. They conceived of time as starting at night. The day starts at night and then morning 
the day goes and the day finally comes to its end when night falls again because of texts like this. And this wasn't just the view of the Jews. This was also the view of time that the Egyptians had. But what's the point here? The point here is the day started, day one started with night, darkness. God spoke, day started. The daylight came to an end, the end of day one. So really here we have an explanation from Moses of what a day is. A day is marked by evening, darkness, that goes to light. And when the light seats, that's the end of day one. And notice I didn't say the first day, which is the way that the ESV translates it. That's because this is day one is the only one that is a cardinal, cardinal number. And thanks to Carrie Bowling for correcting me before this sermon. All the other days are ordinal numbers. What's, what's the point of me saying that? A cardinal means one, two, three, four. I have three different points, but you know what? At some point in the sermon, I could jump to point three or jump to point you know, four. Or then jump back to point one. That's just the point I'm trying to make. And there's not an intended sequential order to that time frame when I just say one, two, three, four. But there is a sequential order implied when I say first, second, third. Day one is the only one that's different because this is the first day of existence when it went from darkness to light and then light night again. Day one. And then every subsequent day that we read is the second day, the third day. All these are clues from our context to speak of the fact that what's being talked about here is a literal 24-hour day, one that we experience. But that view is not without problems. Like I said, the majority of evangelicals do not reject that view. And I'll even go farther there to say that the majority of ministers in the PCA do not hold this view. And it is a hard question to answer because what does it mean to have a 24-hour day without a sun, moon, and stars? It's kind of confusing. So I'm not, I'm not bashing anybody by saying that. But there's different views explaining it. The view I just presented to you, a literal 24-hour day that mirrors our experience. That there is then the day-age view that seeks with each day to say, well, each day might have happened in this order, but we're not sure. It could have been ages long. There's the analogical day view that these are God's working days and they're not identical to our working days. It's similar to the day-age view. It's maybe a little bit more nuanced. And then there's an even more nuanced view. And this is the view that most people in the PCA hold to. Which is to notice some literary elements of our text that are fundamentally true. And the reason why, and someone I'm going to critique throughout this sermon, is Meredith Klein, who is a professor at Westminster Seminary who popularized these views in the Reformed world. It's, they're noticing that these creation days, notice that days one through three are the creation of different spaces, spheres. He creates light and dark. 
Then on day two, he creates the waters, heaven, sky, and the seas below. And then he divides the seas and creates land. In doing so, he just created space, sky, sea, land. And how does he spend the next three days? He fills them. He fills the space in day four, parallel with day one, with the sun, moon, and stars. He then fills the sky and the seas with birds and fish. That's why they're on day five. And then the, on the dry land, he fills at last the land with land animals, creeping, crawling things, all sorts of things that dwell on land, and humanity. He's filling those three spaces. And the view is, is, well, obviously that's the primary point here. God is creating with a very highly structured to teach us about how he made absolutely everything. And the chronology is not the point. Or in the words of Klein, he said in this article where he first articulated this, this interpretation of biblical cosmology, the framework theory, according to which is basically makes scripture open to current scientific views of a very old universe. And in that respect, does not account for, uh, does not discount the theory of evolution, of evolutionary origin of man. He himself said that this is not true of the traditional interpretation, which regards the chronological framework of Genesis 1. He regards the chronological framework of Genesis 1, sorry, Lots of reading this sermon. As a figurative representation of the span of time of creation. And judges within that framework, that figurative framework, that all the things happen historically, but maybe not in that order. And that's when we can take that theory and we need to judge it according to scripture. Is sequence a big theme in this text? Yes. Day one, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh. Is sequence, time, and the length of day important in this text? It seems so. He's mirroring it, the language off of our days, the cycle, and says it was evening, it was morning, the first day. The evening, the morning, the second day. That's how he's diagnosing this. And not only that, but... Let's pretend Genesis 1 is difficult. I don't think it is as difficult as people think, but let's pretend for a second. What do we do when we come across difficult texts of Scripture? We compare Scripture with Scripture. In Exodus 20, verse 11, tells us... I can get here. Exodus 20 tells us that the days of creation, when it gives us the fourth commandment, it says that four, our week, our resting one 24-hour day out of seven, is mirrored off of God's creation activity. For God made the heavens and the earth in six days, and he rested on the seventh. Why did God do it this way? Well, in the early church, there was lots of questions and doubts to this passage and the science of it. Because if God is God, he can speak it into the universe in an instant. Why would God take it any amount of time? And today we encounter the opposite problem of why did God not take as long as what we think gradual processes would yield? The answer to both questions is that God created in a way with a focus on 
humanity and their benefit and their good. Let's pause for a second. Every time I hear unbelievers talk about our world, it seems like their goal is to minimize our importance, to minimize our value and our worth, to say we're just a speck in the universe. But God's focus is on the earth. He actually creates the entire cosmos, the entire universe, with an eye towards the earth. With an eye towards making the spaces for life to thrive on the earth. Should it be really surprising when we go to Mars and don't find life on Mars? It should be surprising if life is something that just naturally, spontaneously comes out of non-life, which, A, by biogenesis is kind of a crazy theory. But we shouldn't be surprised that when we go to Mars, you know what we see? We see it's wilderness and it's empty. It's tohu and it's vohu. And you know what? When you go throughout the entire universe, no matter how far we are scouring, we find the same thing. If there is life, basically the implications of this, if there's life is somewhere else in the universe that's not the focus of Genesis, God had to make it there. God had to design it. That's the point. Life does not just spontaneously come about. Well, that's when we're looking at this. And maybe just one last evidence just to clue you in. If you're looking at day in context, how is the day used throughout the text? Well, verse 14 tells us that when God fills the heavens, the universe with sun, moon, and stars, what does he put them there for? To discern, to separate day and night. To give them signs. I'm looking for it. Looking. To give them signs for days, months, seasons, years. It is at the end of verse 14. I just read the first half. To be for signs for seasons, for days and for years. What does the sun help us keep track of? A day. Does day mean something different here than it did just a few verses prior? It could, if the author signaled that in on to us to clue us in, but it doesn't. It just tells us that that is a day. And he gives us a sequence of events. So then we have to ask ourselves, what happens next? So he gives us a framework for understanding time, and he also gives us a framework for understanding space. Day two is focused on building this expanse. What on earth is this? Well, it's, the word there says in the ESV, heaven. But it's a word there, my ESV actually has a note that it means sky in verse 9, 14, 15, 17, 20, 26, 28, 31, 2, 1. I wonder what it means. Does it mean the heavens the way we conceive of it or sky? I'm thinking sky. Uh, it's just a, going out on a limb here. But once again, we're not given a scientific explanation of this. We're giving it from a human perspective. Sky is going to be the thing in which we're told there's a division between waters above the sky, waters below. And not only that, but we're told in day four that God is going to put the sun, moon, and stars in the sky. What's the point here? The point is that God made 
waters separate from waters. That now what he's done in this is created the seas. There's a sky that separates with a layer of atmosphere which contains water. And if you're not aware of the water cycle, if you don't know what this means, separating waters from waters, where there's waters below, waters above, think about this passage the next time there's a torrential downpour, seeing the waters come from the sky. But the sky includes, from our perspective, everything up. It also includes the sun, moon, and stars. He placed everything in it. Yes, the Bible's not a t scientific textbook, but where the Bible speaks to realities, it speaks truly. He's speaking from our perspective. He's speaking from an anthropocentric, that's the fancy word there, structure, but he's speaking truth. You know, I've, I've kind of learned something uh, as I've been preaching from week to week. And it's that I don't have to fit it all into this one sermon because you guys actually keep coming back next week, which is great. So I don't want to overburden you. What I just want to say is, how does the New Testament take this text? Second Peter 3 verse 5 tells us when it speaks of the world that they think that the world's continuing as it was from the beginning of cre creation, that everything's going to be the same. In 2 Peter 3, 5, says something very interesting. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago. The earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And by that means, uh, by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. What is Peter assuming? He's talking to scoffers in 2 Peter 3 who deny a coming judgment. And Peter says, you know, I've seen this before in human history. God, after he created the earth, after separating the waters, which, when did he do that? Oh, that was day three. After he separated the waters out, he used those same waters to flood and judge the world. That's the flood. And then he says, therefore, there will be a judgment of sin, but not with water, but fire in the future. What is Peter pointing to? He's pointing to the historical reality of all these events. That's what he's assuming, that there was a point in time in which God made the dry land. And that he used those same creation waters to judge the world with a flood. And there's a huge problem with positing long stretches of time in this, and it's this simple phrase that appears time and time again throughout Genesis chapter 1, and you see it in verse 9 at the end, that it was so. so. God spoke, and it happened. You see, theories which argue that God spoke the commands at creation, but that it took subsequent ages to fulfill, undercuts the entire purpose of this passage. God is giving us history to show that he is the creator of the heavens and the earth, that he's the all-powerful one, that when he speaks, it happens. Just like the miracles of Jesus. Jesus did not heal people and then say, you know, go home, eventually your arm will be healed. No. Sometimes he healed an instant, sometimes he healed 
And it took a little bit while, but it happened in front of people's eyes. God, Jesus was actually able to speak to a man who lived in a far land. And that man, at the very hour Jesus spoke, was healed. Now, could we have went there? Could we have done some diagnostic scientific work to discover how it all happened? Sure. Could we have seen that miraculously certain cells regenerated and look into what happened to make this man healed? Possibly. But the point is that when God spoke, it happened, whether it was by natural means or supernatural means. And the entire creation framework is framed around supernatural creation. Let's be honest with ourselves. Why are those, why is the day age theory, the analogical, and even the framework theory, why do they all come to being? Well, if we're honest, it's because of that desire to accommodate what we find in the natural world with what we see in the Bible. And that intuition is good. You know, in Job chapter 38, when God, I read this in Derek Thomas, when God said, Job, you don't know how I did anything, when that was the point, when he's showing Job how little he is, Job didn't answer, oh, you know, I actually do know how you created the heavens and the earth. I knew exactly how you did that. I read Genesis 1. I know exactly how you did everything you, that you did. No, in Genesis chapter, or rather Job chapter 38, what he gives, God gives him questions about how he knows nothing about how the sea was formed, how the planetary rotations constitute night and day. God asked him a volley of questions that he did not know. And you know what? By scientific investigation, we figured out a lot of those answers. We've seen that scientifically, God answered, we can see how he answers questions about earth rotation with day, oceanic currents with how the water moves, cartography, the origin and dispersal of light, meteorology. We see with scientific advances, yes, we're understanding God's world. But we need to make sure that as we're doing all these things, that we're seeking to think God's thoughts after him because God made the heavens and the earth. And the main thing that I want to warn you against is something that happens time and time again. We are far too willing when we see highly structured things like this text in front of us to disconnect history from truth. That was, kind, that was Klein's perspective, just to say, this is not about teaching history, it's about teaching truth. But in God's word, history is always married to truth. You don't get one without the other. Jesus, the fact that he lived in this world and died on a cross 2,000 years ago and then rose again is not just this spiritual truth that is teaching us some sort of lesson... It actually happened in time and space, and that matters. I think we're way too willing to abandon the truth of God's word because we're ashamed of it, because we think that it makes us look stupid in front of the people that we wish to win. And at that point, if embarrassment is the reason why you're accommodating, I want to give you a newsflash. 
by far your understanding of creation is the most harmless thing that you believe in as a Christian. You believe as a Christian, you confess that God cares about and will judge what happens in the privacy of people's homes and the thoughts that they think and never even act upon. That he cares who they love and who they seek to form a marriage with. You know, the world agrees with us a little bit about what goes on in people's heads. They might agree that hatred of other people is wrong, especially if you base it on certain phenotypic or like genetically expressed phenomena, physical phenomena. But they don't like it when it's about, when you, we are saying that God will judge their sexual attractions, which are in their own minds. We cannot let any of God's truth embarrass us out of believing it. Because if we have learned anything from history, is that embarrassment is truly the gateway drug for abandoning all sorts of belief. Following after God. God's truth is rooted in history. That's what makes Christianity unique is to say that God entered into time and space to save sinners. In the history of the Bible, dear Christian, posits history beginning with the creation of the heaven and the earth and its one seamless flow of redemptive history going from Genesis 1 through 11 and all the events it records to Abraham to Isaac, to Jacob, to Moses, to David, to Solomon, to all his sons, and to Jesus. And this is a continuous strain. And we need to beware if we separate ourselves from that. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we come to you now, I just think about how often truth is just used to fill our heads but not our hearts. Lord, we want these truths to affect our hearts. Lord, we desire to not separate truth and history because we don't want to live by lies. We don't want to see people buy into the myths of this world, myths that lead them into a meaningless life, myths that lead them into self-destructive behaviors. We want to tell them of the truth. Yes, that Jesus died for sinners and saves us out of that darkness, gives meaning to our life. But that this is rooted in reality. A reality that God has constructed and framed. Lord, we want to save people from these pagan myths. Because ultimately it leads them to hell. It leads them to reject your world and Lord, may we not be the ones to obscure your pure light that gives us understanding of the universe we dwell in. But may we shine the light of your truth into this dark world. And may we, above all things, point them to the historical reality that Jesus Christ came and died to save sinners of whom we are the foremost. And Lord, may we point them to the glory 
the glory of the true and living God who made all things and not obscure that glory by any invented theory of how we think the world began, but that we would point them to you. For there is only hope in you. And Lord, if anyone does not believe this morning or is not convinced of the truths of your word, I pray that they would come up to me or come up to one of the pastors here at Evergreen and seek the truth. For the truth can withstand our doubts and withstand our questions. And may they seek, seek the salvation of their soul. May they turn to you, the living God, who does not turn any sinner away from him that seeks after him. Who will not deny the truth to anyone who truly seeks after it. May you please grant them salvation. May they not feel that they have any hindrance that would keep them away from pursuing the truth to the salvation of their souls. It's in Jesus Christ's name that we pray. Amen. If you'll stand with me, let's turn to our bulletins to sing the next song to praise our glorious God and King.